Well, again, if we haven't gotten the chance to meet, my name's Aaron. Super excited to be with you this morning. Now, before we get into our teaching this morning, if you are a young kid and would like to hang out with some other kids, we have some fine folks in the back off to my left that would love to hang out with you. Matt Crawl and David are back there. Would love to spend some time uh, with you this morning. If you are going to be with me, though, this morning here, we are going to continue on in our series through the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you have your copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn with me there, or the verses will be up on the screen as well. And what we're doing is we're going through this letter, this really ancient letter that Paul has written to this ancient church in Corinth. Is We've been seeing that how this church is a complete mess. We've titled this series, Messy Church, But God is So Merciful. That despite all of the mess that's happening in Corinth, God's mercy and God's grace is there and is present amongst them. And so this morning as we get into the text, Paul's going to be kind of addressing a lot of the same things we've talked about before and building off of that. And one thing that can happen though, as you read some of Paul's writings, is that as you look into the, the text, it can feel very dense. It can feel like there's a lot going on and there's a lot of moving pieces and there's so many things I wish we could talk about on a Sunday morning, but the, the reality is, is that there's a lot going on, but one thing I want to do is just kind of simplify things this morning and really focus in on what Paul is talking about and the main ideas that he wants to communicate. Now, in order to do that, let me kind of set this up by asking just a very simple question for you. The question is this. Can you think of a time where you were told something or someone explained something to you that just didn't make any sense at all? That it just sort of just blew your mind, kind of blew all your categories. You know, someone may have said something to you and you just could not believe what they were saying. Like it didn't make sense. You know, I think uh, for me, there's the other day I was with my son, Kaysen, and we were just hanging out, just the two of us, and we were getting some gas at the gas station, and I had the back windows rolled down, so I'm pumping gas into the car, and Kaysen's still in his car seat, and he's, he's almost three, and he's asking me, hey, Dada, how does the gas get in the car? And I'm like, okay, let me tell you. And so there's this thing called a credit card, and the credit card, you put it in, and he, he had just no concept of this little plastic thing in reality, right? There's a whole complex process of how gas comes, which I had no idea or, or couldn't explain to you in this moment. But the credit card, it gets gas into our car, and it just didn't make sense to him, right? Like, it just blew his categories of what his three-year-old brain is able to handle. Or the other, about a year ago, there was this kind of funny instance we were talking about. I don't know how we were getting on topic with this, my wife and I talking about different marine mammals. And there is this, we came across this picture I want to show you of one of these things. This is a narwhal whale. And I didn't know if you know this, but a year ago, we didn't know that these are, this is a real animal. Right? <laughs> like, like it actually exists on planet Earth. It's not like a unicorn in the water. Like it's, it is a real animal. And it just blew, in particular, she, my wife said I could share this story. It really just blew her mind that there was an, there's actually narwhals on planet Earth. That it's not like fantasy or anything. And the reason I share all this is because on a more serious note, I'll be, granted, as Paul is talking here in chapter 1, 
Paul is going to be communicating some truths that just don't really make sense to the Corinthians. It just kind of blows their categories of what they know to be true. And it's this mind-bending, shape-shifting sort of thing where it just completely undermines everything the Corinthian culture stands for and what they know to believe. In particular, concerning two things. And like I mentioned, I want to really just focus in on what Paul is really getting at. And these two things, I just want to, in a very simple phrase, is this. Wisdom and weakness. Wisdom and weakness. Because what Paul has to say about wisdom and weakness through our text today just completely blows apart everything the Corinthian culture thought about these two things, wisdom and weakness. Now, maybe to take this a step further before we get into the text, let me frame this sort of as we go through by asking two very simple questions in relation to this, kind of what we're going to be talking about here. In regards to wisdom, as we talk about wisdom, the question I have for us this morning is this. Whose wisdom are we trusting? Whose wisdom are we trusting? And then in regards to weakness, the question being this, are we trusting God with our weaknesses? Are we trusting God with our weaknesses? So we're going to talk about wisdom and weakness. Whose wisdom are we trusting and are we trusting God with our weaknesses? And this is going to keep coming up over and over. I'll keep reminding of, of this as we go through the text. But before we kind of jump in real quick, just let me back up a second. And for those of us who are new or maybe haven't been with us for the, the series, remember the book of 1 Corinthians is an ancient letter. And Corinth was an ancient city in the Roman Empire. Paul had started a church in this city that was multicultural, had so much diversity, so much uh, culture and politics and art, everything that a pluralistic city in the ancient world would have, it was there in Corinth. And in the middle of the first century, Paul starts a church there. He spends about a year and a half there before he ends up leaving to go plant other churches throughout the Roman Empire. But a few years later, after Paul leaves the church in Corinth, he begins to hear that there is some division and conflict happening in Corinth. And so then Paul begins to proceed to write a series of correspondences, the letters that we have in scripture, and there's evidence that there's others out there that we don't have today, of correspondences of Paul going back and forth between the church in Corinth to address some of the issues that were happening in the middle of the first century. And what we have in our, in our laps this morning or on the screen today is one of those letters, the book of 1 Corinthians. And as we jump into chapter one, we find ourselves, Paul addressing the church in Corinth around those two main ideas, wisdom and weakness in our text. And remember, Corinth was full of all of these people that were trying to make a name for themselves, that they were full of ambition and drive and this need to have success. And at the height of this was this group called the Sophists. We've talked about this. This office were these great public speakers. Think of like modern day TED Talks, if you will, where they were trying to gain a following and gain attention and see who could speak the best in public and gain approval and status. And one of the leading theories as to why there was division in the church in Corinth was because a lot of the people in Corinth were probably thinking, oh, these leaders, Peter, Paul, Cephas, Apollos, they're kind of like the sophists. They're like Christian versions of the sophists. They're trying to gain a following. They're trying to demonstrate how powerful they are or demonstrate how wise they are. And the church began to play favorites. Oh, I like Apollos. Oh, I like Paul. No, he's my guy. And so division begins to creep in into the church. 
One commentator writes this about the sophists. Sophistic rhetoricians were like mass media of today. They did not describe, they promoted. Their concern was not truth content, they devised seductive, persuasive strategies of presentation. The whole idea being, who can be the best? Who can win the crowd? Who can demonstrate how wise and powerful one is? And what Paul comes in and says is like, no, this is not what this is about. This is not what the church is to be about. We are to be unified around the message of Christ. And I, Paul, and the other leaders are not coming in here to gain personal approval or status or ambition or a place up on the social ladder. No, we have come to preach the message of the crucified Jesus. And what we're going to see is that this message is an upside-down message that subverts everything that the church in Corinth or the culture in Corinth knew themselves. So verse 18, we begin with this. Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now that phrase, the message of the cross, or the word of the cross, I want to highlight that for a second, because that phrase or that idea would have been a complete oxymoron in the first century, especially in Corinth. What do you mean, message of the cross? What do you mean you have a word about the cross? The cross was reserved only for the worst of the worst criminals. What do you mean, Paul, you're proclaiming a message about a cross? That's offensive. To Paul's Jewish audience, they had a text in their Bible, in the book of Deuteronomy, that said if a man is hung on a cross, they are cursed by God. This was a complete nonsense for Paul's audience. What do you mean you have the message of the cross? But for Paul, this message of the cross was good news. It was gospel. The message of the upside down kingdom. Paul is proclaiming with the message of the cross that Jesus is the one true Lord of all and he has come to conquer sin and death and redeem broken humanity by dying on a cross for the world that he loves. But for Paul, for Paul's hearers, again, this message didn't make sense. I want to show you a picture for, real quickly here of this. It kind of looks like a cartoon. It's like, it looks like your kids' is like stick figure drawing a little bit. But what you see behind me is actually an ancient drawing of someone making fun of, of a Christian. And what you have in the middle is a person being hung on a cross, but their head is of a donkey. Now, donkey is a nice way of putting it. And the person below is looking up at the cross. And what the inscription says in Greek is Alex Menos worships his God. And what you have is an ancient depiction of what many people in the popular culture thought of Christians. They worship a crucified fool. This, this doesn't make sense. This is insane. And that's why Paul says, no, that, it, it's exactly the word of the cross, verse 18, is folly, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, who are being transformed day by day into the image of Jesus, that's what true power is. It's the power of God to change lives. Now I want to again pause right here and just go back to those two questions. Whose wisdom are we trusting and are we trusting God with our weaknesses? Because 
imagine being in Corinth at this moment. You live in a culture that has their own definition of what it means to be wise and powerful and influential. And here comes Paul into your city and he's proclaiming this message of the cross and it's utter folly in your eyes. And you're confronted with a choice. Whose definition of wisdom will I follow? Whose definition of what it means to be powerful will I follow? And will I trust God with my weaknesses and failures and insecurities? That's why Paul goes on in verse 19. He writes this, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And what Paul just did there is he quoted from a passage from the prophet Isaiah, some 500 years plus before the time of Jesus. A time where Israel's leaders were thinking, you know what? We have nothing to worry about. We're going to be wise in our own eyes. We're going to do what we want to do. Judgment's not going to come. God doesn't care what we do. We're going to keep going our own way. But the prophet Isaiah kept telling Israel's leaders, no, you know what? Exile is coming. Judgment is coming if you keep going down your own foolish sort of ways. And Paul says, he echoes back to Isaiah to remind them that you know what? You can't fool God. You can't just do whatever you think you want to do and think you're going to get away with it. Because Paul goes on, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, listen to this, it pleased God. Literally, it, it brings delight to God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. I think of the prophet Isaiah who says, God's ways are higher than our ways. The way that God wanted to demonstrate his sovereign power and his grace and his wisdom was not through who was the best speaker or the wisest philosopher or the most powerful or influential person in Corinth, but through the simple message, the foolish message of a crucified rabbi from the middle of nowhere in the first century up in Galilee. This is God's plan to save the world. This is not something we humans can just come up with ourselves. It doesn't make sense to us. How could a crucified rabbi from the middle of nowhere be the answer to all of the world's problems? To be the answer for all of the hurt and brokenness in this world. It doesn't make sense. This is the upside down kingdom that Jesus and the writers of the New Testament keep on talking about over and over and over again. A message in a kingdom where the poor are blessed. A message in a kingdom where it's the meek who inherit the earth. It's a kingdom where, an upside down kingdom, where the greatest among us is not the people in high places or who have the most money or the most power or the most wealth, but in Jesus' words, the greatest among us are those that serve and that come underneath. In Jesus' upside down kingdom, the highest virtue is not power and status and wealth. The greatest virtue in the kingdom of God is that of self-giving love, agape, in the New Testament. And at the, the apex or the center of this kingdom is not some tyrant who controls all like a dictator, but the self-giving Messiah who gives himself for us on the cross. N.T. Wright puts it well when he says this, the Christian good news is all about God dying on a rubbish heap 
at the wrong end of the empire. It's all about the true God confronting the world of posturing, of power and prestige and overthrowing it in order to set up his kingdom. A kingdom in which the weak and the foolish find themselves just as welcome as the strong and wise, if not more so. Do you see what they're saying? The message of the cross, yes, it's folly to some, but it is the demonstration of God's power, the upside down kingdom. That's why Paul goes on in verse 22, he says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. What Paul is saying there, the Jewish people of the time, they were often seeking and looking for the demonstration of earthly power. You read all of the literature in the first century, their expectation of what the Messiah would be would be this ruler, this military ruler that would come and defeat Israel's armies or Israel's enemies and kick Rome out and set up God's kingdom right there in Jerusalem. That was their expectation. That was their hope. And for the Greeks, the Gentiles, they loved wisdom. They loved who was the most influential, who was the wisest, who was the most, he had the most status or authority in the culture. And Paul says, no, no, you're looking for the wrong things. That's not, how, that's not how God works. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Verse 23, but, but we, we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And notice how Paul is sort of confronting the cultural idols of his day with both the Jews and the Greeks. For the Jews, they wanted this demonstration of, of earthly power. But Paul says, if you're going to be looking for that power, if you're going to be looking for earthly power, it's going to end up being a stumbling block for you. And you're going to think you're almighty and all-powerful, but you're going to stumble and you're going to fall. And if you're looking for earthly wisdom and what the culture has to say, well, it's going to end up looking foolish to you. Now, I want to pause right here and kind of focus in on a couple, couple words here. This phrase, stumbling block. It's very interesting. Bear with me here for a second. Let's kind of let's geek out a little bit together, shall we? Let's get your money's worth. <laughs> this, this phrase, stumbling block, is the word scandalon in the original language. Scandalon, which we get our, end up getting our English word scandal from. And what Paul is saying here is that it's not just like you're going to just kind of trip over like a little like rock or a little twig on the path. No, this is an utter scandal to some. It's offensive. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's a scandal to the Jews. But then this other word, this word folly to the Gentiles, this word folly is, in the original language, it's this word moria. Moria. What, what comes to mind? What, what, what do you think of when you hear the word moria? Moron. Or Lord of the Rings, right? <laughs> there we go, yes. Lord of the Rings, right there. Not Lord of the Rings, but it's where we get the, the idea for moron. Paul's language here, what I'm trying to point out, Paul's language here is very intense. This is a scandal to some. This is more moronic to some, this message. It doesn't make any sense. It subverts everything that the Corinthian culture thought about. I think one thing that Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, hey church, don't be surprised if people stumble over this message. Don't be surprised if people think this message as scandalous. And don't be surprised if they think of you as moronic 
for believing that the crucified rabbi from Nazareth is the savior and Lord of the world. Like, don't be surprised, church, that it doesn't make sense to people. Now, I want to pause right here because what Paul is saying is really important to understand. We live in a world in our day that has its own sort of definition of power and influence and what it means to be wise. And again, thinking about those questions, whose wisdom are we trusting? Whose wisdom are we really trusting and leaning on? Is it what we can devise in our own sort of strength or our own ideas or what we think the culture is saying or whatever the case may be or is it in the wisdom of God that honestly oftentimes looks very foolish? That doesn't make sense. It kind of breaks our categories of what it actually means to be wise and powerful in the world today. But Paul goes on, verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, Paul can't be any more clear than right here. He is completely redefining what it means to have wisdom and power for the church in Corinth, right? He kind of uses this, I don't want to say sarcastic, it's kind of like this very sophisticated, but also very simple way, that last line in verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. He's not saying that God is foolish, but he's kind of using this extreme example, right? You think God is foolish? Well, that foolishness, quote unquote, is actually wiser than any human wisdom on its own. You think God is weak, quote unquote? Well, that weakness is actually stronger than human strength on its own. Paul is completely redefining the landscape of what it means to have wisdom and what it means to have power or the, the opposite of that weakness in the world. Now, what I want to do is really slow down and, and kind of dig into this a little bit. I want to bring in, bear with me, just a couple minutes. It's going to bring in some other scriptures here. And what I really want to do is contrast and dig deeper into this concept of worldly wisdom and Jesus' wisdom and kind of show them side by side. Right? Because for the most part, worldly wisdom is often rooted in the self. It's often rooted in one's own self-interest, one's own status, about making oneself seem more important or more wise or more sophisticated than they really are. But Jesus' wisdom, according to the authors of the Hebrew Scriptures, is rooted in this phrase called the fear of the Lord. This humble, reverent awe of who God is that God is creator and that I am creation, and that I need a wisdom outside of myself in order to live a truly good life. I can't do that on my own. The other thing I wanna point out is that often worldly wisdom is in this idea of we wanna take it for ourselves. Kind of builds off the selfish idea, but it's about taking wisdom, taking status, taking influence for ourselves. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. Where in Genesis 3, the the humans see the fruit and it's good in their own eyes and the humans take it. I want to actually read the passage for you in Genesis 3. It says this. So when the women saw the tree, saw that it was desired to make one wise, right? Desiring wisdom. 
She took of its fruit and ate it. She took of it and ate it. Desiring wisdom on one's own terms, she took and ate. And this unleashes what we call the fall, where sin enters the world. And what at the very start of it is human beings wanting to take and define wisdom on their own terms for their own self. And this is often what worldly wisdom is about, taking for oneself and defining good and evil on one's own terms. Yet the opposite of that is seeing wisdom as not something to take for oneself, but as a gift from God to receive. That wisdom is something that we receive. I think of the passage in in James 1 that says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously without reproach and it will be given to him. That God wants to give wisdom. He wants to impart his wisdom to us. But when we seek to take it on our own terms and seek to manipulate it for our own selfish motivations and for our own gain, it ends up leading to folly and destruction. Paul also tells Timothy that the scriptures make us wise for salvation, wise for living. N.T. Wright talks about being a scriptured, soaked people so that we can be built up in the wisdom and the knowledge of what God has for us. The point being is that oftentimes we want to take wisdom into our own hands, which ends up leading to pride, versus recognizing, no, I need God's wisdom outside of myself, which creates this humble posture of saying, God, I need and I want to receive your wisdom in your way. You know, and this can play out in a myriad of ways. This idea of taking wisdom into your own hands, defining what is good on your own terms, thinking that you know better, You know, the Genesis 3 narrative is not just the narrative of something that happened way in the distant past. It is the story of our everyday life. It's the story and the choices that we have to make on an everyday basis. Will we take and define wisdom on our own terms? Will we take and define what is good and not good on our own? Or will we trust and submit God to God that God knows what's best? That God's definition of what is good and not good is ultimate wisdom. And we rely on that gift for our lives. You know, I think of my own, our own story as a family. You know, we moved down here some three and a half years ago in the hopes of starting our own church. I think many of you kind of already know this. But we came down here with the, the ambition and the dream to see God do something, to, start, to see God start a new thing. And looking back over the course of that journey, we eventually had to close the church down for a variety of reasons. I, looking back, though, it was so clear that as good of a thing it is to maybe like start a church or to be into all that sort of stuff, the motivation behind it was honestly just me sort of taking something that wasn't there and defining what was good on my own terms for myself and trying to take wisdom for myself and trying to do something in my own strength instead of relying on God's gracious wisdom to help and to lead and to guide. You know, I think we can all relate to that in a sense where those moments in life where we want to do something, we have a dream or an ambition or a desire, and maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it's a healthy thing. But when we seek to do it in our own 
wisdom in our own strength and we take what's not there instead of relying and trusting on God's spirit and God's word to shape us and mold us in that process, it leads to harm. It leads to hurt. It leads to confusion and destruction. And I know for us in our journey, the beautiful invitation for us is we recognized that, you know what, we had to, to close this down. It wasn't right. It wasn't working. The beautiful invitation God kept saying over my life was, you know what, I want you to receive the gifts that I have for you. You don't have to take. You don't have to make it happen, so to speak. But you can receive the good gifts of God's wisdom that he wants to impart to you. And will you be humble enough? Will you be open enough to receive the good things that God has for you? You know, I think for a lot of us, this is where it becomes where the rubber meets the road, right? Like whose wisdom are we trusting? Whose ideas, whose influences are we trusting? You know, and the moment we recognize, the moment we recognize that, you know what, I need a wisdom from outside of myself, I need help from outside of myself, we are admitting, we are recognizing that we do not have the power in and of ourselves to make it happen. And that we are actually weak and dependent on God. And this is where this whole idea of recognizing your need for wisdom outside of yourself, admitting to, a, you're essentially admitting that you have a degree of powerlessness. You think you have power. You think you have it all put together. But in honestly, you need help. We all need help. We all need God's wisdom and power in our lives. See, remember what power and influence looked like in Corinth. It was all about status and promotion and who could be the best and who could climb the top. But Paul is inviting the church in Corinth to see it's not about the name you can make for yourself. It's not about the reputation that you can achieve on your own. It's not about what you can do in your own strength. It's not about how much you know or how many Instagram followers you have or what people think of you. It's about will you rely on God's wisdom and God's power in your everyday life and trusting and relying on God in the midst of your weaknesses. It's the moment you recognize that you need wisdom from outside of yourself, you begin to realize that you also need a power outside of yourself to help you in your weakness, to help you in those moments where you fail and fall short. And that's why Paul goes, he's, he's gonna go even deeper here. In verse 26, Paul says this, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, so much is happening there, but what is Paul saying? Very simply, let me just break this little section down for us. The first thing I think Paul is wanting to communicate is first, we need to have a little bit of self-awareness. 
Paul says, consider your calling. What he's inviting the church in Corinth to do is understand who you are. Understand where God has brought you from. You know, not many of you were wise, he says. Not many of you were, you know, the ultimate person or personality or had all the sophistication or all the status. Not many of you were wise according to human standards. But recognize, Paul says, recognize who you are. There's this humble recognition, this self-awareness that Paul is inviting the church in Corinth to see. But then secondly, Paul is also saying we need to have a little bit of God awareness. Who God is and what God is up to. He says, but God chose. Look at what God is up to in the world. God chose what is foolish in the world. God chose what is weak in the world, Paul says. And understanding the, how both of those go together. The self-awareness and the God-awareness go together. Understanding who we are and who God is helps us then, as Paul says at the end, let no one boast in anything else but have their boast, he says, in the Lord. Because all of the boasting that was happening in Corinth was all about power and status and influence and ambition and seeking after things on their own. But Paul's inviting them to see at the end of verse 31, the third point there. Let the one who boasts or delight have their boast or delight be in the Lord. Now think about this for a second. Who are we as humans? Paul is saying, you know what? On our own, we're, we're, we're nothing special. Yes, we're made in the image of God. We're loved by God. All of that for sure. But the moment we think that we have it all put together, the moment we think that, you know what? I've achieved something on my own. Paul says, no, no, remember. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were of noble birth. But Paul wants to also remind them, but this is how God works in the world. God chooses to work through foolish and often con confusing in our minds the foolish ways of the world to shame the wise. This is how God works. Why? Verse 31, so that no one may boast in the presence of God. That no one can stand up here and say, you know what? I've achieved it. I've done it. I've done it on my own. I've made it happen. No, no. Paul wants to say, no, our delight or our boasts is to be in God and God alone. Now, what does that even mean? What does it even mean to say, you know what, my delight is in the Lord or my boast is in the Lord? Does that mean we like go around on street corners with megaphones and like brag about God? Like, no, no, what is Paul talking about there? Well, I want to bring it back to, again, those two very simple questions. Because I think what it means to have our delight in the Lord goes back to, okay, whose wisdom are we trusting? Because if we're trusting God's wisdom, that begins to show our delight is actually in God. Our boasting is actually in God. Because I'm not boasting on my own wisdom. I'm boasting in God's wisdom. I'm relying on God's wisdom. Now what does that even mean? What does it mean to actually trust God's wisdom? What does it actually look like to say, you know what, I'm not going to trust my own strength or my own ideas or my own ingenuity, but I'm going to rely on the wisdom that God wants to give me in my own everyday life. Well, I think one of the things that you can think about is sort of ask like a diagnostic question for yourself in your everyday sort of life. Because Paul says, if you're actually living according to God's wisdom, it's going to look foolish to those on the outside. So maybe the question to ask then is, when is the last time your life looked foolish to the world? 
When was the last time you did something and the rest of, and people, maybe in your family or your friends or whatever, like, whoa, why did you do that? Or why are you living like that? See, if our lives are all just like cookie cuttered and perfect and very smooth and there's all this applause from the world, I think Paul would challenge us a bit and say, you know what? Maybe we're not actually living according to God's wisdom, but actually living according to the world's wisdom. Because to live according to God's wisdom means it's going to look foolish to the world. And then maybe ask that question, okay, when was the last time I did something foolish for God? And you begin to wonder, okay, that pushes on whose approval am I seeking? Because if we're, if we're, if we're afraid of what perhaps the world thinks or what our friends think, Maybe we actually do care more about power and influence than we want to admit. Because often I think power and influence isn't so much in our culture about, you know, like a king or like a president or something like that, but power in our everyday life is about what do people think of me? When I walk into a room, I want people to think well of me. I want to have influence. I want to have status. I want people to appreciate who I am and I want to have a a good reputation. And so because of that, I often care too much about what people think and that prevents me from actually living, I think, the life God fully wants me to live. Where I might actually do some foolish things for God. Where it might seem foolish to the outside, but because I so love my own reputation, I so love my own comfort and my own security and my own status, that how often am I saying no to God for the sake of, you know what, I actually do care more about the world's wisdom versus God's wisdom. Or actually care more about power and status according to earthly standards versus power according to what God says. And this leads into that second question then. Are we trusting God with our weaknesses? Are we trusting God with our weaknesses? Because what Paul is saying here, you know what, on your own, it's very easy to think that you have it all put together. But Paul wants us to see, you know what? Worldly power and influence and status can be addicting, right? We want more of it. We want to feel like we're the most important person in the room. We want to feel like we have it made when honestly, the reality is we all walk into this room with weaknesses. We all walk into this room with struggles and hardships. And the power of the world says, you know what? You have to perform. You have to put on the show. You have to appear like you have it all together. But the foolishness of the cross says there's no more pretending. You don't have to pretend anymore. You are free from pretending like you have it all together. Because it's through weakness. God meets us in our weaknesses that God's power begins to become manifest and real and tangible in our lives. And so maybe you walk in here this morning and you think, okay, I'm fine, I'm good, I have it all put together. But maybe the challenge for you is, you know what? Taking an honest look at your life and saying, you know what, I actually do have some weaknesses. I actually do need help. You know, for me, one of the things that's constantly being, I'm being reminded of is, 
just the, the hardship and the difficulty and the joy of parenting, of seeing how inadequate and how difficult it is to be a father. And at the same time, seeing the tremendous joy it is to be a father. And then seeing that in those moments where I say something I shouldn't have or respond in a way that I regret and understanding that I do not have the wisdom or the power to be a father apart from God and admitting that I need, God, I need your help in that. I need your help in my weaknesses as a, as a parent, God, to fill in those gaps, to meet me in those moments and to recognize that I need God's power in that moment. And maybe for you this morning, I don't know what that is for you, but the question being, where are you weak? Where do you have weaknesses and where are you tempted to pretend like you have it all together? Where are you tempted to pretend like, you know what, I'm fine, I'm okay. But the message of the cross is an invitation to say, you know what, you don't have to pretend anymore. And that you could come as you are and recognize that grace is there for you. You know, I want to invite the, the worship team to, to come up. And as we transition here, I want, to, I want to just remind us again that no matter who you are or how you walk into this room, the message of the cross is an invitation to no longer rely on your own wisdom, your own ideas. It's an invitation to no longer pretending like you have it all together when really, honestly, we don't. None of us do. You know, I'm reminded of what Paul said in this, another letter to the Corinthians where Paul was struggling with his own weaknesses. He was struggling with his own trials and tribulations and Paul had this great line where he writes to the Corinthians and God speaks to him and says, you know what? In your weakness, Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responds and says, you know what? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so I don't know where you are at this morning, but as we enter into a time of worship here, may we respond to God's invitation to no longer to pretend like we have it all together. That we can be honest about our mistakes and our failures and our weaknesses and that God's power wants to meet us in those moments and to meet us in our weaknesses. Father, this morning we come before you recognizing that we need you. We need your grace and your strength. I know for many of us we feel like life is too overwhelming and too difficult. There's too much going on. And it's so tempting for us to want to make it happen on our own. But God, may we in this moment right now have a posture of surrender, a posture of openness to you. That God, you want to meet us in our weakness. That you are here with us in our brokenness. 
and that you are here to help and to lead and to guide. So God, we cry out to you. We ask for your mercy. We ask for your strength. We ask, God, that your spirit would come and empower us. And God, that you would transform us to be more and more like Jesus. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.